Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth. I'm Joseph, and this is my co-host, Lydia. And we're here to talk to you about indie and genre movies that we love. All right, so I hear your apartment's dying of heat right now. Yes, it is. It is. I don't have air. I live in like the oldest apartment ever. It's like this old like art decoy brownstone that was built in like the 30s, which sounds really cool, but it means that I don't have fucking air conditioning. (laughs) <laughs> and we live in Canada, and Canada actually does get hot, and it's sometimes. like, sometimes, it's like 30 degrees outside and humid as hell, and I think in Fahrenheit, that's like 91 or something, so it's not like, it's not like Arizona, but it's fucking hot, and I have no air conditioning, so I've had the fan and the dehumidifier going all day. When I turned my dehumidifier on, I was at 72% humidity in my apartment. Oh my god. 72%. Yeah, I had I had some bad days back at my place, but now I have I'm on vacation at my parents' place right now with air conditioning, Woo! central air. So that'll be nice during this part of summer. Yeah. Cuz I had nothing. I barely had a fan. I know that struggle. I'm going to go buy a portable air conditioner cuz my building even though I'm on the ground floor, my building doesn't want any of the tenants using the window box units for air conditioning because mm. there's been like a lot more reports of those things falling out and like injuring or killing people. Um, so they just want to avoid it being an issue and made it a role for both buildings that they own. So I have to get a portable air conditioner. So I'm going to have to spend like $500 on a portable air conditioner. You know, what's funny is I... um. Even though, of course, we watch our, like, uh, weekly movie thing, and I, and I love that, like, it's always been the thing that, like, I like that that's way to get, like, a movie. Because it's, it's hard to, I find, I always have to schedule movies. Like, it's hard for this to be something to just, like, turn on in the background or anything like I that. I don't know why that is, because I'll watch an entire season of a TV show yeah. without hesitation. I'll be like, I don't want to commit to a movie. That's so long. That's two hours of my life. And then I'll spend eight hours watching, like, eight episodes of shows. And I'm like, I don't. I don't know why I could commit to this and not a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, I don't know, like I've been watching a decent amount of movies recently and I'm just like really into it right now. Like I'm just picking up like a lot of just movies that I've wanted to watch for a long time or I'm rewatching like um, Studio Ghibli in Canada, at least. I don't know if, if this is true in the US, but just uh, Netflix just got all the Studio Ghibli movies. And so that was like, my friends and I did a little marathon night of that. And it was so good. Most of it was rewatches for me, but it was just like, oh, I don't know. I'm just such in a movie mood. What movies did you watch? Uh, we watched Spirited Away, Hell's Moving, Cat Returns, and Princess Mononoke. And Princess Mononoke is like, just, it's so there for me. I like, that's when I forgot the most, but it like, it just really hits themes. It really hits its themes very clearly. Whereas I feel like some of the other ones, it's more mysterious. Maybe just to a Western audience, but like... I found... I mean, I agree with you. I love Princess Mononoke. I really, really enjoyed it, but I think I like Spirited Away more. 
that was my one before I rewatched. That was the one that was my number one. But I was like, I honestly, I hadn't watched them since like 2003 or four. That's fair. And then I struggle because like, I find it's it's hard because I really, really think Spirited Away is my favorite because it's complex and it's mystical and it's really, really beautiful and really interesting. But then I just find My Neighbor Totoro and like, Kiki's delivery service so enchanting and charming and they just make me so happy even though my neighbor Totoro I think is about the journey of death which is very upsetting <laughs> because it's about a child yeah but it's just so sweet and tender and charming and adorable and I love it so much and it makes me so happy um I mean it's a thing I'm sure we've talked about it and like just so many people talk about it. it's like making that distinction between like what you think is the best versus what you is your favorite yeah Often they're they're close, but on other times you're just like, no, I just like this more. I can recognize all its flaws, but this is just what I want. Like, this is what I'm into. Yeah, I don't even know what it is for me because I, I love them both so much. And for, like, obviously very similar reasons because they're both Studio Ghibli movies. But for, like, obviously Spirited Away is, like, a little bit more intense of a story. And they're both, I mean, they're both kind of the journey of death, though. That's upsetting now that I've realized that. I'm having a lot of revelations. I think Princess Mononoke, or sorry, oh my god. I think Spirited Away is more up because she does exit the, um, oh God, spoilers. <laughs> uh, but like she comes out of the journey uh, at the end and with her parents and whatnot. And like a month has passed and then they go to, to live in their new place. Right. So I think it's, I, I agreed with my friends talking about it. That's like, we all sort of agreed that it, it it's about her going to a new place and dealing with all the new people there. Um, yeah. And, and I didn't catch this on my first uh, watch rounds but like they're talking about how the boiler room grandfather character and the woman who runs the whole place grandma character right they are actually they actually use those terms grandmother and grandfather so there's this sense in which maybe it is like her actually visiting her family and her things and just seeing it all in this like th- th- that these these people are just wild to her like it's just such a foreign experience and i was like huh okay that's pretty cool. Or maybe she was in a coma the whole time. Well, yeah. <laughs> There's like all sorts of, or, you know, and she, or that she was actually, you know, spirited away. <laughs> yeah. That's um, Have you heard this interpretation of spirited away that it's about human trafficking? Oh, fuck. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think having rewatched the movie, I really don't see how this is real, but I've de- it's definitely been one I've seen where people are like, yeah, it's about human trafficking. I've heard that. I hope it's not. I don't want these mystical childlike movies to be about really serious topics. I mean, again, Totoro's about death, but still. I mean, Princess Mononoke is, is and Howl's Moving Castle both have pretty serious. I I know, but human trafficking is kind of a whole other thing. You know, like, environmental activism and stolen land, super important. Human trafficking, different conversation. (laughs) I don't want it to be about that. But, like, your interpretation that she's, like, moving to a new place and all of that stuff, like, I think that makes the most sense. But it also does seem like an oddly calm theme for a Studio Ghibli movie now that I think about it. Because they all tend to be a little more serious despite their, like, sort of childlike nature. So now I'm conflicted and I'm really worried it's about human trafficking. I think it has layers, right? Because clearly, for example, she's in the boiler room. And um, the little soots, piece of soot, are carrying the pieces of coal. And then um, she carries one. 
and then they all drop theirs because they're like, we want you to carry it, right? Because they don't want to work anymore. But clearly there's some uh, commentary about working conditions and what's going on there. Yeah. Does that mean that her journey into like a new town, then she enters to a Marxist libertarian or uh, liberation movement? No, obviously not. It's it's layers of commentary, right? They're they're pointing out different things yeah. going on. And I think the parents turning into pigs too is like some other thing. I gotta watch that movie again. What else have you watched? Lots of shows and things, but uh, since the Ghibli stuff was my sort of thing, maybe you want to talk about something? Oh yeah, duh. I forgot we go back and forth. Yeah, I my main thing recently. I mean, I've watched a, I've watched a lot of stuff actually, but my main thing recently has been uh, the newsroom. I've been doing a rewatch of the newsroom, um, which is a show that came out in like twenty ten or twenty eleven originally, I think, and it has Jeff Daniels. He plays a news anchor that's sort of become disenfranchised with what he does and has only been caring about uh, ratings and his public likability, his public image. Um, so he stops really reporting on the news and it almost becomes more of a like news style entertainment show where the only thing he cares about are his Mm -hmm. audience scores. And then his ex is brought back in to be the new executive producer of his show to try and kickstart it back into a serious news show. And it becomes this like very interesting socio-political conversation that he curates on his like primetime five days a week news show. Um, and they have to fight against the network who's used to having these huge numbers with the audience and they alienate their Republican and Democratic audiences because they're so openly critical about things that the public needs to be aware of to cast votes with more education behind them. So it's, it's really interesting. I forgot that Alison Pill was in it. Cool. Um, who was in... Speaking of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, I'm pretty sure she was one of the evil exes. And then Jeff Daniels, of course. But yeah, it's and it has Sam Waterston in it. Who's that? Law and Order, the original Law and Order. You never watched the original Law and Order? I mean, I've seen it, but like never seriously engaged I with love it. Law and Order. I know. I'm not into I'm not into law or police procedurals. I, I just like procedurals in general, because even like, I, I mean, Newsroom is obviously not necessarily a procedural, but I think it follows a similar structure to a lot of procedurals. And I would argue that something like the West Wing follows a similar structure as well, mm. um, where it's it's not so much a case and episode, but like the season will have an overarching theme or plot, but each episode will be a deconstruction of that point in time. So that particular news story on that particular day and then how it, it affects the overall plot. Um, so I would say it operates in a pretty similar function to a, to a procedural, um, and you're sort of seeing the breakdown of how a news story goes from an alert all the way to the desk to being reported and how it's received. Yeah. But it's really good. It's really good. It's, it's good for the like political commentary, especially for the time period, because we lived through it. You know, it, yeah. the, the show starts halfway through Obama's first term. So it's it's interesting because all of these major events that they're reporting on are major events that we would have experienced in our adult lives because this would have been after most of these occurred after we graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really interesting to watch. I think I'm finding just like, you know, talking about politics in our lived lives, 
I'm finding more than ever that even any media I'm watching right now, I feel a push and pull based on like the times we're in, uh, whether I'm feeling exhausted by COVID and need something more like comedic or feel good um, or by the, or by politics. I'm thinking like, oh, I, I need to, you know, increase my diversity, increase my political um, engagement in media and my critical engagement of media. I don't know. It's, I'm more, I feel like I'm more sensitive to that than ever um, recently. And yeah. I watched an episode of Queer Eye the other day just so I had an excuse to cry <laughs> at the TV. Um, I am not liking the new season of Queer Eye. I feel like I don't know what's happened behind the scenes, but I feel like they're kind of over each other. I just don't feel like they're vibing as much. It's so funny that you said that because I, I didn't read it, but I literally just saw an article with an interview from Bobby and Tan that says, like, you have no idea how emotionally exhausting this is on all five of us. And I was just like, oh, shit. Like, I mean, it makes sense because you're basically overhauling a person's life, like putting a Band-Aid on the largest or most obvious problems that are easiest to fix over the course of a week or two weeks or however long it takes to film. So you're like in their lives for like a week or two and you're basically trying to repair as much damage as you can as quickly as you can and as easily and succinctly as you can. So that must be like... Very challenging. I think the premise of the show, too, feels more difficult than ever, where it's really about reconciliation of differences, that they, they really have a lot of, um, they have, they have a lot of very leftist people, but they have a lot of, um, like, deep Republican people, too, and trying to introduce them to queer culture, which, you know, I've never thought is a bad thing to do. I think that it's probably very, very helpful. But I think in this particular political moment, I don't know. People are really digging their heels in. Yeah, and it just it just feels awkward. It feels like a not the best time to be in that state. Um, so I haven't I haven't been enjoying that. I did I did watch the second season of The Politician. Oh yeah, I still haven't watched it. Which I liked, but uh, I think honestly, like you know, it's it's been a week since I finished it, and I'm just like, there just isn't much to say about it. It's very similar to the first season, and just a little bit weaker. That's how I feel about everything Ryan Murphy does. If I'm being completely honest, like, I, I like a lot of things he does. I think Scream Queens is, like, for me, a much bigger drop-off. Like, season one is profound to me, where season two is, like, messy. I agree. Um, this season, this season two politician has a new premise, has an escalating, um, what's it called? Raising the stakes, does it well, um, new characters introduced, things. But it's just, like, the actual plot points and moves you don't have you, you don't have much new to say. It's just a new sort of cast of characters and a raising of the stakes. Um and it's very short. It was seven episodes. And I think the first season was longer, I'm not sure though. But it just feels um very, very tight. Like they go through huge plot points constantly. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like this should have been stretched out. I feel similar about most stuff Ryan Murphy does. If you look at American Horror Story as an example, I really liked yeah. the first season. Because it had, I, I will admit, I will fully admit, it's not perfect. But it had some, like, it, it took a couple big swings. But I felt like they had enough time to kind of do everything that they wanted to do. And I didn't feel like anything was, like, overly superfluous. Like, did they need the gimp suit? Probably not. Was it a cool feature and kind of interesting to find out who was in it? Yeah. Ultimately, I, yes. And so overall, I really, really enjoyed it. And even though they introduced a lot of characters, it felt like 
they either were the right kind of tertiary character where they didn't need to be built up or they were built up to the degree that was worth it for the payoff. And then you move into the second season, which I think a lot of people argue is the best season. And I would heavily disagree Mm. if I'm being completely honest. The setting of the second season is really cool. How they have it in the asylum is really cool. There are some really cool characters, but they took even bigger swings that didn't make sense that they didn't tie up. Like they have that Nazi doctor doing experiments on patients and Chloe Savini gets turned into this weird mutant that crawls away and dies in a gutter and they do nothing with that. They have Kit who's seen aliens and has been abducted and then goes to prison for killing his wife. They don't clear any of that out. It's just aliens exist and he's been abducted and that's it. They have the lesbian reporter who gets put in the institution for being a lesbian and then is potentially being like abused by Zachary Quinto's weird asylum doctor but they didn't utilize the older nazi doctor in that portion like there's just a lot of things and then they have jessica lang's character going insane there's just a lot of things happening they're showing hallucinations they're showing aliens they're not wrapping anything together they're not explaining what's a hallucination and what's not it's just these huge swings where you get two episodes of an arc and then you get no conclusion to the story and you're like, I guess it was cool looking and the setting was neat and I liked the characters, but all of it was so disjointed that I'm not really sure what the message was supposed to be. If they had have just done the like nun being possessed by the demon storyline and then had like maybe a side plot with the Nazi doctor, that would have been amazing. I actually really like the nun possession storyline, so I wouldn't get rid of that. But if they had just done that and then, like, one other thing, I think it would have been really, really mm-hmm. cool. But because they did, like, six different plot points in a ten-episode season with 15 different main characters, none of it made any fucking sense. So you got, like, by the time you got halfway through the season, you're like, oh, this none of this is going to get tied up. And I'm just going to have to, like, live with that the way I did when, like, they never explained the smoke monster and Lost. For me, the plot points of Politician Season 2 were very, very fast, but the there was one basic plot, one election that was being followed, and everything connects to it. My problem was actually that that meant a lot of characters didn't... They had storylines going on, but because some of their storylines weren't directly tied to the election, it felt so, like, who cares? Like they did their they, they they got one scene that isn't relevant to the thing, and then they just get dragged right back into the main plot. I don't know, like there's there's just no depth of character added to me for me. I think Ryan Murphy is really, really great at creating interesting concepts, but isn't actually good at fleshing them out and may not necessarily be a great writer. Like I think he's one of those people where it's like you can be the creator but you really need to not have any creative input once you've outlined your basic structure. Beyond that, you have to leave it to somebody else because I don't think he can actually do it. I think there's also a weird thing to do with um, watching really plot-driven, quote-unquote, prestige television uh, seasons right beside movies where the, the pacing feels weird and... It's so strange to me that movies, which are tighter than, like, have to pack more story into a thing, often have more moments of reprieve than television shows, where they'll have, like, a very relaxed moment between characters or a very long shot or whatever, like a very purposeful thing. Whereas TV shows, it feels like 
because they're always doing two things, like the episode has to be exciting, and then they have the overall plot, uh, it always feels like every single clip has is moving something ahead. They never give themselves like that really filmographic moment. But with a movie, you have anywhere from like 90 to let's say 200 minutes, because movies are stupid long these days. But you have essentially like one major plot and then maybe two subplots and you can have anywhere from like one to 15 characters that are central to your story. Yeah. So you can have those long shot moments and it doesn't feel boring because you know that, you know, this is 15 minutes and it's just character development. But after the 15 minutes is done, there's going to be more movement. Whereas with a TV show, you have anywhere from 24 to 60 minutes, depending if you're watching cable television, prestige television, a half hour show, a full hour show, whatever. So you have to get whatever plot you're getting in that one episode all the way through, link it to whatever your overarching theme is, have your character development all within that tight, like maximum 60 minute window. So you can't have 15 minutes of just a long tracking shot of like your fucking set design because then that's 15 minutes that you really can't make up anywhere else. You either have to have a weaker plot in that episode mm. or you just need to cut it down to a shorter time frame. Yeah. Um, so I think that's why that tends to be why you don't have those like really long, heavy moments of just straight character development you have small moments of character development constantly throughout every episode so everything feels like a faster pace than what would normally happen in a real life conversation i think one of the things that you're definitely spoiled by in movies even compared to except maybe the very best um prestige television any like medium level prestige television is that they're churning out these stories like like fast and 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 they have a, like a lot of space to put the overarching story in a movie right the, the like a good movie the themes and things they they make it very dense they they have a lot of stuff going on with a lot of things and the rewatchability factor is really interesting for that because you're watching it and there's a there's a density to a scene where the every background character could be relevant the settings could be relevant in a way that even prestige television Ex again, except for the like the truly like seven million dollars plus an episode one top tier, yeah. It, often they just are trying to get the, like they're just giving you everything a little more um uh, on the sur surface or like they're they're trying to get give it to you directly. They just don't have that like density of layers. So it is something that like I think I am more critical like at this very moment since I'm watching like a lot of movies. I am more critical of some of the prestige television I've been watching, and I just like it just doesn't engage me as much because I'm like I could just be watching a movie. It's very weird. Yeah, I mean, I understand it. I think I think it's really difficult to compare a movie and TV. And I know that's weird because they're basically the same medium. But, like, the very structure of a television show is so different from that of a movie. Even if you're looking at, like, a trilogy. Mm -hmm. You have it very bookended. Like, you have a beginning, middle, and an end. Whereas a television series can go on anywhere from one season to 15 seasons. And you have no idea how much of your original plot from the first season is going to interlink as you come down the line. Yeah. There's things you can't do with your characters and character arcs because you don't know how long they have to last. 
Exactly. And there's no, like, there's no exact book ending. You may have an overarching theme or plot for your one first season, but if you plan on doing a second season, you have to have some way to link them together. So it's never going to be fully bookended. You're never going to have a neat bow around each of your characters and their development and their supplemental plots. So it's really hard to compare those two different things because they have completely different fundamental structures in the way that the plot is going to through line. I think to really enjoy like good TV, like prestige television, you have to sort of be cognizant of the fact that you're never going to be satisfied in the way that you will with a movie. Because with a movie, once you're done, like your 200 minutes or whatever it yep. is, you're done. It's over. You know exactly how it ends and you're satisfied or you're dissatisfied. With a TV show, even if you're dissatisfied, you don't know if that satisfaction is going to come in the next season. So you have to be willing to like hold on to that and it has to be good enough to make you want to come back. And that's a very different feeling. It's something I'm pretty sure we've talked about before, but I think TV is swinging back and will swing back more to um, episodic strategies because so, like when you look at what people are really rewatching and really fall in love with with shows, a lot of it is going back to Friends, going back to The Office, going back to these episodic shows. And even like an example that, you know, is dear to my heart now, Schitt's Creek, I think is like a really beautiful hybrid where it's, there is full seasonal arcs and the plot moves ahead each episode, but any episode can be watched independently and it's totally, you're not just watching for the plot movements. It's enjoyable as an episode. Uh, so much like when I'm picking up, especially these again, mediocre, like seven, like five to seven out of 10 prestige television, like it's so, it just feels like there's better things to be doing with your time. Cause you're like, you have, if you haven't fully hooked me, it's like, I could just be watching a movie or I'd rather like have something I'm just falling in love with. I can keep watching forever. Like, like one of these episodic TV show things. I get that. I think the feeling that I have, cause there are a lot of like prestige shows that I have rewatched and I have really enjoyed, but I think the feeling that I get from rewatching a prestige show is very different from the feeling I get from rewatching something like friends or, I mean, I don't watch the office, but I assume it would be a similar feeling with friends. It's sort of like comfort food. I can put it on and I don't really have to pay attention to it. I can enjoy little bits and pieces from it, or I can want to watch like a full season arc um, because I really want to see what happens with Ross and Rachel this season because I remember it I never want to see that but you know there's an example whereas if I'm rewatching like a prestige show I'm yeah. I'm really more rewatching it to sort of pay attention to it like friends I've probably rewatched like four times at this point and it's mostly because it's comfort food and I'll watch it when I'm like really stressed out and I don't want to have to put effort or thinking into something that I'm watching but like I'm rewatching newsroom right now and I'm rewatching it because it's been nearly a decade since I watched it. A lot of the political opinions that are brought up in it seem really relevant to today, especially the critique of like bipartisanship mm -hmm. and the like far right extremism and the way the media plays a role in um, that sort of deviation of bipartisanship. You know, I'm rewatching it for. Those kinds of insights and takeaways, I'm not rewatching it because it's necessarily comfortable. I'm rewatching it because I'm realizing it's even more relevant than it was at the time it came out. So I think there's a big difference there. Like, I don't think I'm going to rewatch Game of Thrones anytime soon, but I think when I do decide to rewatch Game of Thrones, it will be for a specific reason and to find those 
interesting highlighted moments that are more applicable or more exciting or have fundamentally changed media in a way that I didn't realize yeah. they would until that happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's important to have that time gap too for, um, it's, it's less important with the comfort food stuff, but for the prestige one, like you, you don't really want to rewatch it if you've just seen it just because it's like, you still have a lot of the memory and whatnot. So it's like, yeah, it's both the time and the reason to go back to it. Um, all this is to say, though, that, like, um, a lot of the other stuff I've been watching, like, I just couldn't get through it. I, I, I started The Order Season 2, and it's just bad. Not surprised. I'm really excited for, just because you mentioned The Order, um, I'm really excited for Discovery of Witches to come back. Mm, I never started that one. Oh, it was on Shudder when you had your thing. I didn't watch, like, anything. I think you'd really like Discovery of Witches. Yeah, probably. If I'm being honest. Like, it's 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 not as... I would say it's similar to The Magicians in a way, but it's a little less, like, college student-y. Mm -hmm. And it's a little more, like, adult. Mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense. Like, there's a, there's a little more gravitas to it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But I think you'd really like it. I uh, Yeah, I almost finished... Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. No idea what that is. <sighs> yeah, it's it's a it's a fantasy book or space off fantasy book that people uh really liked. Susanna Clark. It's not Harry Potter, but it's it's a magic set in current day book. So very much like magicians and whatnot. Oh, not not current day. It's set in um nineteen hundred or so, like or even a little bit earlier, like eighteen ninety or eighty or something like this. Not at all current day. No, but like it, kind of like the world that they enter into in Harry Potter where, you know, they don't have cell phones or whatever. They're just like, they're like, yeah. when they go to the Diagon Alley and whatnot. It's about, it's about stuff, ice magic and things. They don't have cell phones in the muggle world even, do they? Not yet, because it's like... I don't remember there being, like, I don't remember it being modern. I thought it was like in the, like, 50s oh, maybe. or 60s or something. Never thought about it. Just by the look of the cars in the movies, yeah. I'm being honest. Like, I, I didn't really read the books. But by the appearance of the sets in the muggle world, it looks like it's like the 1960s. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I've never really... The houses and the cars and the clothes don't look like current time. But that could have been a stylistic choice based on the movie. Yeah. Well, because I read the books first, so... Yeah, so that that one I don't have much to say about. I, I liked it, but I just couldn't finish it. But then what I got into and what I've been really, like stuck on for the last while is I am just super into all these gritty sci-fi stuff. As you know, I've been watching Battlestar Galactica, which has been unbelievably good. Talk about prestige television. Incredible, incredible show. We just, uh, we just finished season two. So that one, I think, is one of the true rewatchable prestige television. For the first two seasons, there is like almost never a bad episode. Like it's so just everything is hitting a beat it takes a little bit of a dip after that but honestly not enough to damage the enjoyment of the show whereas like i think alternatively game of thrones went on for eight seasons and the last two seasons did damage the integrity of the show overall with battlestar galactica i really don't feel that it damaged the integrity of the show at all i feel like battlestar 2 isn't relying as much on on a there is there is a final climax that they're building towards like they they say it many many times in the show but i don't think it's as like it's so clear in game of thrones that it's about who will be on the iron throne and how that will happen so it's just like you're everything you're watching in game of thrones you're always watching like these moves for like even character deaths in season one two three and four are relevant to who can now take the throne or who has political power and so it's like everything is meaningful towards that end. And so if you if that doesn't work, you get upset. 
So it's like, whereas this show, it's like, no, no, their, their character moments and their growth is, it's fine. It, like, you, you can appreciate it no matter where they end up. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Although the thing we make fun of all the time is just, like, the Cylons, or, like, the Cylon um, sleeper agents and whatnot. That's, like, every two seconds you're thinking, who the hell are the Cylons? Like, it's just, like, always this this bomb. I loved that, though, especially in the first two seasons where I was just like, yeah, who is it? It was like, I loved that little little added mystery element because it, it, it changed it from just a straight sci-fi to being like this mystery thriller inside of a sci-fi. Yeah. So it was like fucking Clue and I loved it. How many Cylons do you have so far? Lots. No, I know, but like, because they're numbered, right? So like how many numbers do you have? Six, I think we have six of the 12. But it's it's either five or six. Yeah, I can't say anything about who they are because because those are big big spoils for the show. No, Battlestar should never be spoiled. I don't care how long it's been since Battlestar came out. Like, I will never spoil who the Cylons are for somebody because it's such, they're just so like it's such great reveals and they're such important reveals that I would never spoil that. That's been great, and I finally, with the sort of juice I was getting from that show, I also managed to finish season four of The Expanse, which is a very similar. Like, uh, just, you know, just about a little bit of technology ahead of us, like maybe a hundred years ahead of us, um, in space. And I love it. I think it's great. But season four, the premise became, it, it went from giant political scale to small scale again, which sort of makes sense. They're, they're trying to like change things up, but I just did not like that small scale. I was really interested in the big scale moves. So I really struggled, but so then I quit the show. Basically, I dropped it for, for a while. Coming back to it, it was so funny. Basically, the very next episode, it shows the move of how they're going to get back to. Oh so I was God. just like, oh, now I love it again. So it was just, it was, yeah, it was kind of sad. That's that's about it for me, actually. I watched the first two episodes of the new Perry Mason reboot. Mm. The, like, HBO show that's on Crave. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you ever watched the old Perry Mason. No. But in the old Perry Mason, he was a lawyer. In this Perry Mason I'm assuming it's a prequel to the old one. So it's supposed to be before he was a lawyer, but he's a private investigator. And it's like just after World War One, and he served in the war and he's a little bit, you know, not put back together after serving in World War One. I don't want to give too much away, but the first episode, this couple's baby is stolen and they get a call for a ransom and they go to essentially bring the ransom, but they're supposed to see the baby first before they give the money so they go and they like look in the window um of i think it's a train i already can't remember which is not a great sign but i think it's a train and they see somebody but they don't see who but somebody holding the baby michael jackson dude so they leave the money in the drop spot and they run on to the car and then the person who's holding the baby puts it down and runs off the car and when they get on the car and pick up their baby the mother's holding it and is obviously really happy but the baby's not moving so they pull the blanket back and the baby is dead and its eyes have been stitched open okay and that's how it begins so he is hired by the lawyer i think like the um prosecutor i believe to investigate alongside the police but it is actually really good like it's really interesting the time period is great for a show like this. Like, I feel like having a private detective show just works really well in that sort of a time period. Once you get past the 1960s, it feels a little weird. 
But yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. I think it could be really good, but it feels like one of those prestige shows where it's like, it could be really, really cool, or it could be like The Alienist, where the first like three episodes are really, really cool, and then you just have no desire to watch it again. The Alienist, I really had trouble with at the beginning. It was like two episodes, and I was like, great, I'm. this is interesting enough that I want to keep watching it, but it's not amazing. But it felt like it was building towards something, and then I watched the third episode, and I was like, honestly, I'm just so bored. Like, I just don't care. And this show feels like it could be really, really great and, like, really keep me with it. Or I could end up dropping off and not giving a shit after, like, three, four episodes. There's also nobody I recognize in it, so that's kind of, like... Mm -hmm. I know that's a dumb reason, but, like, I like having somebody I, like, immediately am interested in as an actor or an actress. And that kind of keeps me hooked if it's a little shaky in the beginning. I forgot that this happened. The happening... Um, with the movie The Happening? Because that movie sucked. No. Um, but that's that's connected to my point because I always make fun of my roommate for just whenever we can't pick something to watch, he just picks the the literally worst imaginable movies to put on. And I'm just, I hate them. So one of them was The Happening? So, no. So so the, the one that he picked last week was uh, Highlander 2, which genuinely that. hurt my feelings towards Highlander 1. I know. It's so bad. It tried to explain certain things, and it was so bad. Now, the actual movie, so a lot of people claim this is, like, one of the worst movies of all time for, like, a real budgeted film. The actual movie, I think, is just, like, a 3 out of 10, like, plain, just bad. Yeah. Like, ill-constructed, bad sets, bad Regular bad. Yeah, it's, but I don't think it's, like, there's something the room-level horrible going on. Yeah, it's not offensively bad, it's just bad. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the Batman, the early Batman films, like Batman and Robin and whatnot. Um, but not, not as fun. Yeah, see, that's the difference. They're bad, but they're rewatchable and enjoyable. Yeah, it, it upset me with this, with this, uh, premise stuff. And then even after the Studio Ghibli stuff we watched, he turned on the Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back movie, but in, like, CGI that they remade. And obviously, I liked the Pokemon movie when I was a kid, but it's obviously not good. It's just ridiculous and the cgi Pokemon. is so much more just childish and and there's nothing charming about it to me like it's so just like that bad hokey children's style of cgi and i got we got through like three quarters of it i don't know i was just like too tired to get up and go to my room and go to bed but i was like <laughs> the happening is i mean m night Shyamalan has made some bad movies but there is no movie worse than the happening <laughs> From him. And his, I, I refuse to accept that there is any movie worse than The Happening. And I'm including Lady in the Water, which is not good. God, I mean, first of all, the stagnant, dull chemistry between Zoe Deschanel and Mark Wahlberg as a married couple is like the weirdest casting choice. I, I can't, I, there isn't a world in which I can understand that casting choice. And second, you never cast Mark Wahlberg as the smart guy. <laughs> I don't care if he might actually be a fucking genius in real life. He sounds insane saying, like, professor-level dialogue. And he's supposed to be, like a, like, a professor of botany or something. Like, I can't even remember. But he's supposed to be, like, fucking smart about plants. And I... I it just sounds like mm -hmm. he doesn't understand how to speak English when they make him say those lines. It's ridiculous sounding. 
God, that movie sucked. The trees are attacking people because they emit too much carbon. It's so stupid. The whole thing is fucking stupid. Yeah, it, it it's it's the premise and conclusion are terrible, but it's also just the beat by beat structure. As you're saying, is just yeah, so, everything about like, it's bad. The casting was so bad. The dialogue was weird and stilted. There was no chemistry between the actors. It's like you just picked a bunch of strangers off the street. And the premise was stupid. Like, the premise was something you would see in, like, a fucking Goosebumps episode. Uh Uh-huh. It was, though. The trees are trying to kill the people does not seem like a serious film. No, but I like Goosebumps. Yeah, and I probably would have liked that premise in a 30-minute Goosebumps episode. (laughs) Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. Getting real heated about it. And he's made some, like, I know he's made bad movies, but he's also made some fucking incredible movies. And I'm just like, I don't understand the cognitive dissonance that allows you to make something like The Sixth Sense and then follow it up with something like The Fucking Happening. Like, I don't understand how you did it. Or Unbreakable. Arguably his best movie, and I think it was his first one. Fucking ridiculous. I think that's more common than you think. I think a lot of strong artists have like real bad things in their catalog yeah but to make like 15 movies and be able to and and have the power within hollywood to be the creator writer and director of the majority of these films and get huge budgets for them and make movies as shitty as he's made and make good movies so few and far between i don't Mm. fucking understand his career trajectory how is he still making movies And how are they still so desperate? Like, it's not like he's gotten better with time. He just, like, was due for a home run eventually. I think he did a few good ones. So, I don't know. I think he did a lot of truly bad ones. But, like, I really liked Signs. I do, too. But, like, Unbreakable is great. The Sixth Sense is great. Signs on a first watch I hated. And on a second watch I really liked it. And then on a third watch I couldn't understand why they came with no weapons. And only sprayed poison gas from their fucking wrists. To a planet that's 70% water and kills them. It makes no sense. And it's a ripoff of War of the Worlds. And it makes me angry. But I also really really liked Joaquin Phoenix and Mel Gibson together. As brothers. Even though I hate Mel Gibson. I thought they were like really really good together. And they had great chemistry. So the casting really elevates it for me. And the kids are great. But then the village sucked. And I refuse to accept any other answer. The village was terrible. He gives his twist away 40 minutes into an almost two hour fucking atrocity. The visit was not horrendous. But the twist was so obvious and stupid that it ruined the movie and made it into like a mid-tier horror film. I thought thought it was a really fun uh meta twist i thought because he was you know there was playing so out like obvious. and there's aliens in the water and blah, blah blah and you're like oh my god like but i thought i i knew the twist like uh, like i i but i was like but then the movie makes you question and it's like but what is all this stuff that's happening what is all the stuff that's being said so i enjoyed the like twist on a twist would you would you put it any higher than maybe a six yeah a six or seven yeah it's not great Plus, the diaper scene was uncomfortable, and I honestly didn't think it was necessary. It was a shock value scene, and it was meant to be gross out and to give a little extra oomph to a movie that was clearly struggling. So that bothered me. Split was fine. That was him, too. Overall, I don't think it's a great example of a very, like, already complex and often argued mental illness. 
So that kind of made me struggle with it. But James McAvoy and Anya Taylor-Joy were fantastic in it. So I would say it's like maybe a little bit above a mid-tier. I'd put it at a seven. The ending where they link it up to Unbreakable kind of pissed me off because it felt like such a fucking throwaway. Like they didn't do anything to earn it being a sequel to Unbreakable, which is his best movie that he's ever created. It was like, we're just going to put Bruce Willis in this and then we have an excuse to make another movie with him in it. And we can bring back Mr. Glass and everybody loved that character. So like now we have an excuse to spend 40 fucking million dollars. And I'm like, fine, but it's annoying. Glass was not that great. If you were going to do a sequel to Unbreakable and you make it be Glass, it was a fucking weak movie. And it was an excuse for Sarah Paulson to basically just regurgitate one of her American Horror Story characters, which I don't think she can do anything beyond at this point. She's basically just a Ryan Murphy character as a person. Yeah, I thought I thought her character was pretty bad. Um, but I, I liked I liked Glass. She's the crux of the movie for the most part, too. It's like you spend two thirds of the movie dealing with their like group therapy sessions, which don't really make sense to begin with. And then you have this like epic fight scene at the end where I'm like, none of this was well earned. And I'm kind of annoyed we didn't spend more time with Mr. Glass, who was already the most interesting character of the three of them anyway. And like, I don't even want to talk about how terrible Lady in the Water <laughs> is. Despite the fact that I love Bryce Dallas Howard, and I also love... Um, Paul Giamatti and John Leguizamo. I think that's the only one I haven't seen. It's not good. Don't watch it. It's based off a bedtime story that he wrote for his children, which is really sweet. So it's basically an homage to his children and their like lighter, more fairy tale loving days. But it's not actually a good movie. It's kind of like a Big Fish ripoff, mm. but not nearly as whimsical. Big Fish is a deeply charming movie. It is. And it doesn't have that. It doesn't have that. They use a lot of similar techniques that you get in Big Fish, but it doesn't have that sort of charming, sweet, like mystical and fantastical thing about it. And the characters aren't nearly as likable. So it's like, it's a, it's a grade level below Big Fish, but it's still like fine, I guess. Servant though, the TV show I will say is excellent and it's very worth watching. Oh, I don't know anything about this. Never heard of this. Uh, it's an Apple TV original, which I know is strange, but it is actually excellent. And I think the reason it is as excellent as it is, is because he is the overall creator and he wrote and directed the first episode and he has some writing credits in the other subsequent episodes and some director credits in the subsequent episodes, but he isn't in charge of writing the entirety of the show. That has been to his benefit. Having other people take over aspects of that show has made it better because ultimately I think he is like Ryan Murphy, a strong concept mm -hmm. artist and he's not a terrible writer, but I think he gets stuck in his own story and can't figure out how to get out of things that he's written in, but they're so interesting that he doesn't want to cut them. So then you have these weird disjointed like twists that come too early and then he tries to rectify it later on and it doesn't make sense or it's not in line with what characters that he's already created would do. And it damages the overall effectiveness you don't have that in servant um and it's a lot slower of a burn which i really like mm. as well should we get to the movie soon or did you have more you want to talk about i have a couple more things but i i'm not sure i want to add too much more no i mean we can always bring them up at the end i just went on like a 15 minute rant about m night Shyamalan, so <laughs> neither of us have watched m night Shyamalan in anywhere in the recent past let's no, do no i just like raged about it I, th I think it's because I find him the most frustrating 
writer-director and most disappointing because his concepts are so interesting and so different and he can't fucking execute them. I think a funny one in, in the news, and maybe we can talk about it next time, whatever, is uh, I'm sure you've been seeing all the stuff with Christopher Nolan and Tenet coming out yeah. and like he wants to like push it out quickly. It's like, oh, it's such a mess. Yeah, I know. And Christopher Nolan refusing to have chairs on set, which I think is just like the funniest headline I've seen in an article. Oh, God, yeah. I... <laughs> I do want to say one funny thing about that, though, is someone put, posted a tweet about, like, hey, like, they were, like, raging against, like, Christopher Nolan and being like, Inception is not a smart movie. And he's like, I talked to, like, a person on my dorm floor once, and they were like, I watch Inception once a year, man, because that's all my brain can handle. Boom. <laughs> it's great because that exactly sounds like the same kind of douchebag who's like i need to watch fight club at least once a year to mm. like revive my understanding of the concept of that like unbe- like believable movie and you're just like fuck off dude like it's fucking fight yeah. club for me it's every two years so it's okay no shut up but you know you know exactly the kind of person that <laughs> no, I, mean. I know it's like mean. that douchebag frat boy who thinks he's smarter than everybody and it's like calm down chad Nobody cares that you can't handle, like, the metaphysics of fucking Inception. (laughs) All right. Okay. So we are going to watch the movie now. As a reminder, we pause our recording and watch the movie off air and then come back with a recap. Hello and welcome back from the break. Um, so we didn't say what the movie was before we started the movie. Um, and you'll, you'll get it from the title in the description, but we forgot to actually say the title of the podcast. So we watched The Invitation, which is on Netflix, Canadian Netflix, I'm assuming it's on American Netflix too, starring uh, Logan Marshall Green, who is an upgrade, and Michael... Hoosman, Hausman. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he was in Age of Adeline. He was in Game of Thrones. The Guernsey Literary Potato and Potato Peel Pie Society. That title. Did we watch that one together? Yeah, that, loved, that thing. I love that one. I remember saying that. No, but I think I watched it at your recommendation. I love that one. Very good romantic comedy. Or maybe we did watch it together. Fuck. We might have watched it together now that I'm thinking about He's it. He's a good actor. I loved this movie. It, obviously, you saw I was like super in it and freaking out. Like I'm honestly so excited because I've that that was my third, I think third, possibly fourth, but third rewatch of that movie, um, or second rewatch, third overall. Um, and I absolutely loved that movie. That was one of my first experiences with like sort of the new version of horror where it's very like ambient it's not it's all about tension building um and character development and it's not so much like it's not about like ghosts or ghouls or or anything like that to create that sort of um semblance of unreality it's just about character interaction and room tension I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but that's that's very much the style of movie that I like. And I watched it for the first time, like, alone on a Saturday night. And it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just such a good experience 
I mean, I think it's better when you're completely alone. It was great watching it with you. This is the first time I've ever watched it with another person. But it's, I, I think it's best experienced alone, in my opinion. Um, because you can really sort of live in the tension and discomfort that's created. You can't escape it. I, I'm debating with myself. It's going to be hard. But we'll try to not say any spoilers. But yeah, there's a lot. because yeah. It's not Because there's, yeah, a lot of the interesting stuff is spoiler things i one of the things that i definitely felt like and as you saw i was like super tensed up like so much this film because what a lot of it is is like a dinner party and just the way they talk to each other and the way people it's the it's this thing of like politeness people have a dinner party it's like that the worst kind of family dinner party where you know someone is going to start screaming at someone else by the end of this horrible dinner family dinner but you're like um everyone has to be like super polite this is very for me like a very suburban thing like i think of it as this like where oh definitely this idea of like politeness but all the like frustrations come out in these like side room talks like oh just come over here for a minute oh just have a glass of wine with me oh we're gonna go on the patio and just talk for a second you know and then you know that they're just the whisper the the family secrets are being revealed and like you know blah 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 and it's just That I'm so used to that touch, and a lot of my friend groups too. As we were talking about, like I've been been there where like big tense moments are happening between people, and oh god, like the movie just made me feel so just like nail biting. Like I was just like, oh, like this is I know. just just where I am. And I think that's why the climax works so well because it like the way the tension builds up and the way everything tracks. I'm again, I'm trying not to give everything away, but it's, it's fairly, you can kind of see it has a pretty direct and, and simple plot and you can see the direction it's going in regardless of how tense and uncomfortable things get. But I think that's why the climax works so well because everybody is being so polite, so unnervingly polite and nobody wants to say that anything is fucked up. So when everything finally explodes, you get a certain type of release of tension that has been building up for like 60 minutes. So it's really effective. This is something that's actually hard for my life because I don't feel like I've experienced profound loss in my life. And I almost feel, I almost in a way feel the tension of waiting for that to happen in my life. Cause I mean, unless you die early, like everyone's going to experience some kind of loss in their life. And right. um, I mean, it might not be that traumatic. That's true. Some people, it might not. Yeah. But yeah, they, so a lot of the characters in there, especially the main character is, you don't know exactly what it is at first, but like has clearly um, felt a great loss. And so it's his um, ex-wife who invites him to this, to this dinner party. And, you know, so you know, something happened that meant why they're, they're split up. And so the movie like Midsommar that we referenced during it is a lot about the after effects of, of trauma and grief and how to deal with that. And I thought the movie really did a good job of following his character, the the main guy's character, to, like, on that point and making you really feel that. But also knowing that something weird's happening, which is, it's it's actually very similar to Midsommar in that way, that you're, it's both, this is the hard thing, that people will say that something like uh, profound love or profound grief is the most real thing. But it's also the most unreal thing because you most come out of yourself or you most are broken from routine, broken from everyday reality. But it's also something that is you must deal with it or like that must be 
attended to, and in that way is most um, not your not yourself or not in your own control, but but the real of of the world and whatnot. And I think this movie did a really good job of like just how that politeness layer, that like layer of society put on top of it. It's just being like. Mm-hmm. pushed to the limits and you can see it in his face the actor's face like all the time in the movie that he is just like one inch away he's like what are you people doing to to like fake this politeness and not not yeah. get to the fact that they hadn't been together for so long because so many of them had been dealing with these really difficult situations that you don't know about until a, like about a little bit into the movie yes well and i think I think it also, it delves into sort of the interpersonal relationships that you have, your friendships, and how your friends handle your grief. Um, And that's also really interesting because, you know, he, obviously, him and his ex-wife experienced this profound loss, and she completely retreats from the friend group and seeks solace in, I'm going to call it a grief support Mm -hmm. group, so we don't kind of break down everything that's going on but she she completely retreats from her support group and finds a new and different support network um and he also retreats from the friend group but in a very different way and it's more like he's Mm -hmm. like he doesn't want to burden them with his grief and he doesn't really know how to express it and share it and his friend's for the most part, didn't reach out as much because they didn't understand what he was going through or how to help him move through it. So he found, you know, a new partner when he was ready to move on who was able to sort of help him understand and move through his grief. And he, even though he was still in a lot of pain, throughout the movie, he's treated with these kid gloves and treated like he's broken down and he's not mentally well like he's treated as though he's more of the issue than his ex-wife and these new friends that she's brought in that are very strange and uncomfortable and involved in some weird things everyone is like more willing to be polite with her and think like well at least she's doing well whereas with him who who actually seems like he's rebuilt his life but is still experiencing and accepting his grief they don't know how to speak to him. They think he's the problem, his emotions are too raw, he's too aggressive, or he's mentally unsound. And I think that's really interesting because he's he does seem to be moving through his pain in a healthy fashion in comparison. But because she's so polite and she's not overly emotional, his ex-wife, everyone is much happier with her brand of, of yeah. getting over it. And I think that's true to form. I think that's realistic. I think like even though the healthier way is to experience your grief and be in pain and have those moments of irrationality as you're as you're accepting it, as you're moving on, as you're trying to rebuild yourself, I think that is the healthier way to, to move through your grief. Whereas she seems to have kind of bottled it all down for a quick fix. But it's it's palatable and it's polite and they don't have to put as much effort with her. She just disappeared for two years and came back totally okay. And they're willing to completely accept that. And that's sort of heartbreaking because she ends up being the one who is much worse 
her health has suffered much more significantly. Her mental well-being has suffered much more significantly. But because it's palatable and it's easy, they don't recognize it. And they just accept her as fine and put the onus on him to get over it. I really like how the friends came into this too. In that I, I would say if I do have a criticism, in a way it's because you do have moments with the friends, which I think are good, which I'm going to get to in a second. But um, that I almost wish there's a bit more instead of just focusing on the main plot. Because I think, I get that. Uh, for example, he talks to one of his friends and she says... Oh, you know, I was acting a little more distant because I didn't know where we should be at. Like, if you didn't, you do I treat you, you know, sensitively? Do I do I do I coddle you or do I stay right? And that's a very true statement. That's what I'm saying, right? She said she wanted to give him space, but then she realized after the fact yeah. that it might have seemed like she was checked out. But then it had been so long that she thought it would be strange to reach out. I And I have been there. Like, it, it, yeah. it navigating these is so real. Mm-hmm. It's very true to form. And it's a huge emotional labor. Like, I'm not going to say any friend is a terrible person if somebody's going through grief and they aren't there for them every second. You're not a bad friend if you're not there for your friend in pain every second of every day. It's understandable because it's all, it's emotionally taxing. It's a huge amount of emotional and mental labor to be there for somebody going through such a profound loss. But if you are truly their friend, you can't not be there at all. Because when somebody's going through that kind of pain, even if they need some space to process, nobody wants complete distance and certainly not for two years. So there, you do sort of need to be sensitive when navigating it, but you need to at least check in because it's so easy to get lost in your pain. I think that's very real. And in my experience, I think the hardest thing is that people have the hardest time, or let's say friends in this case, friends have the hardest time when you are in pain to ask, like you don't want to ask for help. But you want to clue the person in that you need their help to bring the yeah. invitations, bring the coming out and, and not put too much pressure on you. Like you want to be brought to things you want, or, or you want people just come over and just hang out or whatever and just sit with you. But it's so hard to be like, I want to use up friend points or whatever. So to, to make you come over for five hours, or whatever. No one ever wants to put that thing like, I need help now. You know? Well, yeah. A, it's it's incredibly difficult to ask for help. Like, it's just, it's so hard to admit that you can't carry an emotional burden alone. That on its own is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But then it's also like, I, I don't, I know that this is an emotional burden on me. And it is technically my responsibility to carry it. And I don't want to put that kind of pain or burden or difficulty on the shoulders of somebody that I love. So what's what's the right response here? If I ask you for help, I A, have to admit I'm not strong enough right now to do this alone. And that's a huge blow to the ego, no matter who you are. And B, I have to admit that I'm okay with putting that burden on you, even if it's just for a few hours. Because if I'm genuinely, genuinely grieving, even if it's not your pain, to come over and have to hold that kind of emotion for five hours for somebody that you love, when you walk out the door, it doesn't just go away. You still have the reminiscence of 
of the pain that someone you love is going through and you recognize that there's nothing physically that you can do to fix the situation. So when you leave, you know that they're still in pain and that's, that's emotionally taxing. That's really difficult to come to terms with. I can't actually do anything tangible to fix this. And I still feel all of the pain that I witnessed. To, To me, it's, it's, it's all that. And it's, it's so many of the, I wouldn't say little things, but like these medium things where you are navigating social sort of gravitas between each other, social things like when you build up a deep friendship and deep trust and loyalty in each other, you, that becomes your support network. And there are responsibilities in there that become, it's, it's, it's deeper to navigate because what it means is that, you know, unlike when someone just asks to hang out and you're thinking is, would this be fun to do? Or do I want socialization? Right. It isn't about that anymore. This is the level where it's like, you're checking with your, your friends and your short partner. It's like, how are you doing? Like, do we need to be checking in on each other? Do we need to be, um, things? And, and everyone's different for that too. Some people sure. need to be invited out to group events. Some people need, you need to go to them and just like watch Netflix with them for, for hours or whatever. And it's, it's so different for each person. And that's about the depths like of, of your friendship and understanding someone else. And that becomes, you know, I feel like the, the, the hardest parts in friendships is the sort of, um, micro betrayals that happen during those moments where people like you didn't understand or your friend didn't understand, but you can like lose a friendship by just a misunderstanding during these points when someone's going through a hard time and you know, you just didn't negotiate that the the yeah. right way. And that's so, so much. Having like dealt with depression for so long, it took me like a really long time to A, be able to like say I have depression and B, to be able to communicate those kinds of feelings well enough that like if I'm in a shitty mood and like I'm, I'm dealing with depression and there's varying degrees to how I deal with it and some are great and some are really terrible. But there's, there's a certain specific type of irritation that comes with that kind of pain, that kind of depression. And, and it can come with grief too, where you, where you just get snappy, you get aggressive, you get angry because you're angry inside yourself. You're angry at your own emotions that you can't cope with in that moment. Yes. And it took me a really long time to be able to understand that like, A, sometimes I'm just sad and I need to be sad and alone. Sometimes I'm sad and I need to communicate to people who give a shit about me that like, hey, if I go off the radar, this is why. Or if I seem really needy, this is why. And then sometimes I'm kind of a bitch and I need to be willing to like call them up the next day and be like, hey, I treated you very poorly yesterday. This is why it's not an excuse, but I want you to understand what happened. And I am sorry that it happened. And I can't promise it won't happen again, but I will do my best. And like that level of communication took me years and I'm still not perfect at it. So like when you have a big sudden emotional trauma, there is no way to communicate that effectively. Like no matter, no matter how perfect you are of a person, no matter how excellent Absolutely. you are at communicating with your friends, that kind of sudden emotional trauma is so unprecedented that you were never going to be good at it. And in those moments, it is up to the other half of that relationship to make up the difference. And that's a huge ask. But if it's somebody that you truly like love, friend love, family love, romantic love, whatever. If it's somebody that you truly love, you you have to be willing to like make those missteps and sometimes make it worse and sometimes get into fights and do your best to make it better. 
because they're not going to be able to hold up their end of the bargain in those moments. I think there's also, I just, before we get too off topic, I just want to say, I I think there's also an interesting juxtaposition in this movie between Mm -hmm. the way men handle trauma and grief versus the way women handle trauma and grief Mm -hmm. and the way that their friends express that and are there for them in in different fashions like she's weird and flighty and eclectic and they're all willing to be polite and accept that and fully accept her new partner who is also weird and do their best to accept their weird friends who are making the situation very uncomfortable whereas he is doing that brave face thing and being very intense and like not being emotional, whether it's like loving or affectionate or grief stricken or whatever it is. He's just being quite closed off, which I think is a relatively natural response to grief for a lot of people. And they all seem incredibly like they're trying to be friendly to him, but they seem very standoffish and they've all expressed at different points in the movie, how they didn't try to reach out to him. Whereas you notice throughout different points in the movie, they're like, she's disappeared for two years. You know, we tried to reach out. We tried to get in touch with her. She went away. They were in Mexico. They did this. And it's like, so you made an effort there, but then you clearly make it like you make it abundantly clear throughout the film that you wanted to give him space. And it's Mm. like, why did you try to reach out to her and try to be a support network for her, but you sort of left him out in the cold? And I think it's, I think a lot of it has to do with like, there's a certain expectation when women are in grief versus when men are in grief. And there is certain, like certain types of expectations for how they handle it and how they move through it and what kind of a support system that they should have as a man or as a woman because they make it clear that they like they love him they want to be there for him but they also think like space was what he needed which i don't think is the case but i also think because of the kind of pressures we put on men and emotions there wasn't really going to be a chance he would reach out to them and i think that's a perfect example of like that's the moment where like they should have picked up the slack and none of them did the men or the women in the friend group you know i was just thinking about that in their relationship as a friend group. And I'm somewhat disturbed now thinking about the movie and, you know, them being older, like around 35 ish on average um, people. And just thinking about what's happening in the movie and, you know, the fact that uh, you don't see any of their kids in the movie, uh, you know, trying not to spoil too much. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and it's just like, and this is how the, I'm like, is there a commentary here about people's lives at a certain, um, uh, age and like the extremes people will go to? Uh, and that, that I didn't think about during the movie, but now I'm like, I'm not sure I like this commentary. I'm not, I'm not sure I know what you mean, because I don't think there's anything unusual about them not having their kids at a dinner party. No, I know. That's true. So maybe some of them do have kids, but I was just thinking like, one of the things I really liked at the beginning is you never see, or it's so rare to see. I mean, there's how I met your mother and whatnot, but it's like just friend groups of, of 30 pluses getting together in, in stuff. And, or like when I was growing up, or at least I, you just think of 30 year olds as having families and like everything is done as family units and like things. Yeah. And, and like this idea of like the, in your twenties, when you get together as friends and everyone's roommates and friends or whatever, and people are dating and things like that, it just feels like such a different world. But maybe yeah. we are hitting much more of an era where um, 
that's much more mixed. A lot of people haven't started a family at 30, and a lot of people have. So there's, like, a lot of options. Well, and that's and that's what I was going to say. Like, I have friends that are, like, you know, getting married, buying houses, all that shit. I have, I know people from high school that have kids now. So, like, it's not that unusual, but I do think it's more common to be child-free coming into your 30s and in your early 30s. Um, and I think there's, it's, it's relatively more common for there to be an age variance in your friends groups once you're like around 30. Like I've got friends that are in their late twenties. I've got friends that are in their early to mid thirties. And I don't think that's that unusual. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a mix of people who have kids and people who don't have kids, people who have gotten divorced, people who are still together. Like it's, I don't think that's that unusual. Um, more so what I think is unusual is how fucking successful they must all be to have yeah. those nice cars and that insane house but whatever yes i think that's a lot more unusual with this age range yeah. than anything else but i mean like when i was a kid my my parents had dinner parties and like sometimes there'd be family there and they might bring their kids but usually they wouldn't so like i'd have a sleepover yeah. or whatever like that's not that weird to me but that's so but that that richness of them it, it again trying not to spoil the movie here but the the fact that you don't see their kids and the fact that a lot of the characters are rich right and they're and then the, the how the movie plays out i just think like there are there's, there is some kind of like kids are the way right like these people are i, I don't I mean, really see that given the circumstances of right i i don't think there's a kids are the way thing if that was the case I, there's no way for me to say this without spoiling it, but you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. And given that that is a main plot point in the movie, I don't know how you're coming to the conclusion that kids are the way. And we also don't yeah, know they don't both, have children yeah, because there is a flash or a juxtaposed sequence yes. of an old party before the separation happened and the current dinner party. Yeah. And there's a big It's much more family in the themed. Yes. And there's a lightness and a sweetness. But of course, at that house, they're not going to bring their kids, given the circumstances between those two central characters. Yeah. So I think think that's more the reason you wouldn't see any kids. Also, because of the climax and nobody wants to see that happen. Yeah. You know, you've got like eight fucking 13-year-olds running around. Like, that's not a good time. Yeah. But it almost, you know, it it takes place in LA and they're in like the Hollywood Hills area. And, um... In this beautiful, beautiful house. It's, I mean, honestly, for the right. house porn, it's almost worth it for itself. Yeah, mid mid century modern, really, really stunning. Lots of levels. But it, you know, it almost reminds me of like the theory, like with BoJack too. Like these these characters who have just lost their way in life and are like they have friends and people are trying to do stuff. But like, it is funny that like family is such a difficult part of that picture. But but it's weird. It's in a way to me. It's just so much more relatable than a lot of other stuff. Where yeah, for to see older characters like that that isn't family oriented is so different. Although family is a theme. Well, I think like ten, yeah, two degree. I think ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, it would have been a lot more unrealistic because generations older than ours yeah ten tended to have families and children younger, and now millennials you know, generally don't start having kids or getting really settled until they're in their 30s or mid-30s or late 30s or whatever. It's it's less of a social pressure to have children so that, I don't know, I can understand why it might be a sticking point. And I'm sure if I put this movie on for my parents, it would definitely be weird to them if I pointed it out. But 
I don't know. It just, it's not something that populated in my mind because my friend groups are generally populated with people that do not have children. Mm-hmm. So it's not that weird. And I do have some friends that are varying degrees of success. No, like I, I have I'm friends saying that are at my stage and friends that are above me. Yeah, it's not weird, but, or like, oh, like for our generation, but I'm just saying like in media, you just don't see that. Or like, I just found that such a different... Feeling. I think we do more and more now, though. Like, again, maybe. because media is more directed at our generation, or maybe we're mostly consuming media directed at our generation, but I do think you see that more commonly. Like, I don't remember the last thing I saw that was, like, spe- I mean, hereditary, I guess, has a family in it. <laughs> it's not exactly the best example of wholesome family values, but yeah. it does I, have a yeah. family. But they're also significantly older than us. Like, Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne are in their 50s. Yeah, because How I Met Your Mother and Friends do have, like, older characters. I just don't feel like, you know, they're still, to me, those characters are still in that, like, late 20s phase where they're still figuring out their lives um, and their jobs. Whereas these characters in this one, it feels very much like, no, no, no. We're, like, all these characters were mostly, like, set. Um, And they end to have this, like, tight friend group. is so, like, I don't know. It's interesting. Midsummer had a similar vibe. Well, midsummer they were university younger. students. They were college students. Uh, what the like PhDs? Yeah, but still, they were still college students. Yeah. Um. So that's that kind of takes the edge off. It's very easy to have yeah, a large friend group when you're in college. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of them were colleagues. So. Yeah, they were friends when the the main characters were still a couple when they were still together. So I think there's there's a better chance that that came from melding friend groups, which is relatively common. She had some friends, he had some friends, they brought them together in a group so they could all hang out. So I think it's probably more likely that like, he had three or four friends and she had three or four friends and they became a friend group just because of proximity. I mean, like Jason and I were kind of friends in high school, but I used a name, fuck. We were kind of friends in high school, though. Like, we weren't super close or anything, but we were friendly. But when he started dating Sarah, I'm just going to say her name. I don't give a fuck at this point. When he started dating Sarah, like, he and I obviously became significantly closer. Yeah. And it's just solely based on proximity. Yeah, but I I don't think I have much more to say about the movie. I thought it was really awesome with the friends thing. Um, You know, it's a nice diversity of friends. You know, there's a uh, diversity of different types of people. There's a gay couple. And... Yeah, just just the openness there, you know, this is used for the horror in the movie as well. But like the openness that they're sometimes able to break through the politeness layer or the thing and just Mm -hmm. be like, what do you need right now? Or, you know, I just need to tell you that, you know, that I love you and all this stuff. And I just think that's that connected with me. And I, I like this new type of horror movie that is really bringing in emotional dimensions and rich characterization. Mm -hmm with I agree. It, a truly brings, interesting um, viewpoint and horror moment. It brings the horror to a new level. You know, have, having like a really genuine connection with these characters makes it a lot more intense and upsetting when something negative happens to them. And I don't know why this isn't something that was done earlier in, in horror. I mean, it wasn't in, in some movies, but I don't know why it wasn't done earlier in horror overall, 
solely because it's the same kind of thing that you would see in like a drama mm-hmm. or a romantic um, comedy or whatever. Like the more invested you are in the character, obviously the more invested you're going to be in anything positive or negative that happens to that character. So your payoff in horror is that much grander when you actually give a genuine shit for the character. I think sadly a lot of that has to do with um, like now being in like, and I'm feeling this more and more, this going through like academia and seeing like the roots of mentorship and the roots of things. I get the feeling that in that industry, because horror movies were B movies and slasher fix for so long, that if you wanted a horror mentor. So rude. Well, yeah. But no, I, and, but I'm just saying that's, that's, you know, that's the, the history of the, what people call that genre. No, that I know. If you wanted a horror mentor, a mentor from that field, that's what you're going to be used to. And they might not teach the same things and the same techniques and the same, have the same concerns as the people writing dramas, writing these other um, types of movies. And so the crossover just might've taken just this long um, because of where they were relegated. I mean, that's true. I also think, I also think this, this kind of, I mean, again, this ambient horror isn't new, but I do think the, emotional payoff is is very different than what we've seen in in other types of older horror i mean you have ambient horror if you look at like argento that's ambient horror but this is very different because it's emotional horror it's it's dramatic horror which is different than an argento and i think the reason that now is the time that something like this works so well is because millennials and gen zers tend to be those generations that are more emotionally connected and more open with their emotions in general, you know, we're, we're unteaching that closed offness that older generations had with grief, with pain, with Mm. anger, with like frustration, with fear, all of those things are much more out in the open. People are willing to talk about being in therapy or having depression or whatever. It's, it's, it's there's still stigma there, but within their own pockets and within their own generations, we tend to be more willing to have an openness about raw emotion that didn't really exist in society. And I think that's why these kind of emotional horrors work so well in the millennial Gen Z kind of range, because it is sort of a stretched out funhouse mirror version of what we're already experiencing. You know, our generations have the higher percentages for suicide, for mental illness, for all of those types of experiences. So we're there and we're in it and we're understanding what we're going through or trying to. And that is something that's, that's so important to be explored in cinema, but it's also really easy to not easy, but it's, it's interesting to capitalize on that kind of willingness to seek out our own fears and our own illnesses and our own pain and expand on that. I think our real fears are more tied to this, this the psychological problems and the feelings of being inadequate Mm. to our society, inadequate to the politics of our time. Absolutely. It's very intangible. It's not physical things that we're so much afraid of anymore and the physical things that we are afraid of tend to be genuine like not like ghosts and goblins but you know something like the purge where it's like a political takeover and society comes to a screeching halt or something like um 
God, what was that one that Martin Freeman did that was a horror movie and it was post-apocalyptic? Like, those things feel very tangible and, and in our future because we've destroyed our own planet and we're kind of at the apex of something like that being a reality for our children or our children's children. Um, whereas, like, even though Hereditary obviously has elements of the supernatural in it, of course it does, the things that tend to be the most frightening are things like loss and death and um, anger and divorce and like abusive interpersonal mm-hmm. relationships. Those are the parts that create the tension that allows for that supernatural release where you can sort of allow yourself to step back from like, okay, yes, they're abusive. Okay, yes, there was death. Okay, there was grief. And all of those are really difficult to process. And then you get to have the release of like a metaphor for what that pain and moving through it looks like. Yeah, completely agreed. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I love, I absolutely love Hereditary, but I think for me, something like The Invitation or Midsummer was even more effective because it allowed itself not to have any supernatural payoff. All of it was just physical, tangible, real experience. Mm-hmm. Even even if it's a little bit stretched out in Funhouse Mirrory, even if the likelihood of going to Sweden for like a mm-hmm. weird field Swedish cult experience isn't something that's probably going to happen, they are still real, actual people, and real, actual people can get sucked into something as depraved as that, as we've seen in Jonestown or the Manson family or Waco. Yeah. All right, it's, I think that's it for me. Anything you want to add? I don't think so. I'm just really happy you loved it. Yeah, no, that was an awesome pick. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so for glad. Re-watching. This is the first time we've, this is the first time we've done something, done a movie where one of us has actually seen it. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. It's um, at fanslabpod, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 90% sure it's at fanslabpod. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.